Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter, Built by Scott, and Instagram at King O'Kane, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire a community of people who take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. If you're in human performance today, you recognize that the industry has changed. Gone are the days of highly focused specialists who live in their isolated lanes, working without the understanding of the whole human being. The world of human performance is about integration today. It's about recognizing what your client needs to do to perform at their highest potential, discovering the parts of the puzzle of performance that need work, while keeping this person moving, training, performing, and succeeding seamlessly. Reconditioning is an operating system for this new world of human performance. The practice honors the role of each specialization and helps define the most powerful and tactical use of interventions that will make a difference. You don't take your car to the garage only when it's broken. You schedule for regular maintenance so that it keeps running smoothly when you need it. The human body is no different and reconditioning professionals are those best prepared to keep the human body running. Check out our courses at ReconditioningHQ.com today. Follow our robust educational programming and become the reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with. It's been four years that Leave Your Mark has been up and running. And during these four years, uh, we've had a fantastic podcast sponsor in Matrix Fitness. I have to thank Greg Lawler for his commitment to this podcast and his commitment and his team's commitment to what we're trying to do is helping you in the community see and listen to some of the best in the business of human performance. And to talk about the best in the business, well, right back at Matrix Fitness, they are the best in the business at what they do, and they serve uh, the continuum of human performance from the day-to-day person who is looking just to stay fit and, uh, and to aspire to be healthy to the person who wants to be out uh, performing at their best in an athletic endeavor. They have all the equipment that spans that continuum. They're ready to help you, the practitioner, or you, the person who wants to build your at-home facility or a facility or an institutional facility to have success with your clients or with yourself. So I encourage you to take a look at their products. Head over to teamupwithmatrix.ca today and check out what they're doing. They have outstanding equipment and outstanding customer service. So once again, thank you to Matrix for supporting Leave Your Mark and take some time today to check them out. Wow, what's going on at ReconditioningHQ.com these days is insane. Uh, You can find the entire R1 Foundations course online and available to digest at your leisure. The R2 Designs course is right there as well, fully loaded. R3 Colab is a combination of online material all about the neurological system and then a live laboratory where we dive deep on everything reconditioning. These three courses walk you through the process of reconditioning all the information and what we've done now is we've attached to all of this a mastermind community and when you're in the mastermind community it's 20 bucks a month uh, and you have access to weekly meetings that we're going to be doing on case studies 
all kinds of gem material from things that we've done, uh, guest presenters, guest interviews. We have Matt Jordan coming up in a few weeks, Nick Ward from Altus coming in a few weeks as well. So we've got some outstanding people coming as guests in the future. We are basically in that mastermind combining uh, revolving eight-week labs for each of those courses. So they're cycling through. We're going to do eight weeks and take a break to another eight weeks. So if you're in R1 and you want to come in and learn while you're in the mastermind, we have meetings once a week for an hour to go through the material. So it keeps you accountable, allows you to touch base with what you've learned, ask your questions. It really allows you to dive deep on all the information. On top of that, because the world is starting to open up a little bit, we are going to have our first live lab in Montreal, May 14th, 15th for R1 Foundations. And effectively, what we're going to do is when you purchase a course, you have all that material online. You have access to the mastermind and the community material and the community learning. And then you can come with to this meeting on the weekend for two days and just dive deep on how to play with all the information. And so it's not a, a, a teaching lab as much as it is a learning lab, a trying lab, a context lab. And that's what we've got uh, big time for everybody these days. And then on top of that, the International Hockey Performance Summit is pivoted to virtual June 10 to 12. All the powerful content, we have kept it all in there. We've revised the curriculum. You can go online, take a look at it. The SCAF Summit pre-summit is going to be there too. So three days of incredible information is going to be available to you. If you have an interest in hockey performance or foundationally the people People who are speaking at this thing are the top of the world at what they do. So you're going to take away whether it's hockey related or just training and performance related. It's there for you. So come and join us uh, virtually. It's all there for the taking. And then on top of that, if you are interested in ski performance training and you want to learn to train to train uh, or train to compete with your athletes that you're working with off snow, I am doing a ski program, a workshop on April 23rd, 24th in Mont-Tremblant, Quebec. It is also virtual as well. So it's live and virtual. It's a hybrid event. You can jump on that and that's available right now. Going to be dropping the hammer on that April 23rd, 24th. So uh, look forward to having you with us in anything we're doing reconditioning today. Head over to reconditioninghq.com to check out all our offerings. As an avid listener of the Leave Your Mark podcast, I'm sure you recognize the process that I take our guests through in learning about their lives and understanding what it is taken for them to become the professionals and the successes that they've had in their lives and effectively there's a lot of learning that we go through and everybody that I talk to talks about mentorship and influential people in their lives and the podcast has always been my offering to the community at large uh, for you to see and learn from the insights of others. But now what I'm doing is uh, at the beginning of May I am launching the Leave Your Mark Life Lab, and this is going to be my stewardship process for helping you become the professional you want to be through mentorship, through reflection, through directed conversation, giving you skills, providing accountability, 
and talking about your progress and inside a group of people who are all trying to do the same thing, providing you with a, a lens uh, of, of reflection on yourself and the things that you want to accomplish and recognize that you need to put as much into yourself as you do into others. And this industry is crazy when it comes to us taking care of everybody else but not taking care of ourselves. So I want to change that. That's what the LYM Life Lab is all about. I encourage you to head over to the Leave Your Mark website, which is lymlab.com. Check out what we're offering in the LYM Life Lab section. You can also download two free videos that I created that are a starter kit to this process and looking at creating change in your life. And I would be remiss if I didn't say, hey, grab yourself a hat while you're there because Leave Your Mark hats are sick lids if I do say so myself. And lastly, I want to uh, invite you to check out the latest episodes and please take the time to go over and leave a comment, leave a rating on your favorite streaming service because it helps us get out to more people. So without further ado, let's get on to the podcast. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the honor of speaking with Nick Ward. Nick is currently the Programs Director for Altus. Altus is an elite training environment for athletes and a global leader in the provision of education for sport performance. Nick is in charge of building education and training resources that share Altus's experience and extend their processes to the performance community at large. The complexity of managing both the performance and health of athletes is at the heart of the Altus approach. Nick has a substantial and diverse resume, multiple performance environments, competitive athlete himself. He's been in the world of human performance professionally since the early 90s, emigrating to Canada on several occasions for work and sports performance, and returning to the UK where he is originally born to take on roles with the Great Britain Paralympic skiing, the Sheffield Eagles Rugby League Talent Athlete Scholarship Scheme as well as building the first regional and national strength conditioning program for England golf. Nick and his family emigrated to the U.S. in 2016 to take on the a role as the director of Barton Health Center for Orthopedics and Wellness. He lives in Lake Tahoe and is with his wife and youngest son, and he is also a grandfather. I am pleased to have him on the show today. Welcome, Nick. Hey, Scotty. Uh, thanks so much for having me today. It's a real honor to be here. Yeah, it's a, a great pleasure. I mean, we've known each other for a while now. Talk about your life, which, um, you know, reading the info that you sent me um, obviously has been circuitous and windy and all over different places. And that's pretty cool. I mean, you've got a really cool story to tell. So let's go, let's go back to England. You grow up where and, and kind of what are, what are you hoping to be when you're a little boy or what, what are you kind of dreaming of being when you're a little guy? So I was born in the town of Abingdon, um, which uh, was famous for a couple of things. And, uh, one was the MG car. It was one of the factories for the MG car. My dad used to work and also the mall and brewery and some people around the world, beer aficionados will know of old speckled hen, mm. but also had a little bit of a history. It was one of the sites of the English civil war and allegedly King Charles actually stayed in, uh, one of the, the houses there, which later became a pub, you know, this local folklore, right? The King's head and bell. Cause he was the 
king that had his head chopped off after the Civil War. So yeah, growing growing up there, and um, really I was inspired by my PE teacher at the time, who was an ex-RAF, Royal Air Force uh, instructor called Roger Stroud and Roy Lewis. And I guess partly I like what their lifestyle looked like, right? Hanging out in the summertime, T-shirts off, teaching sport, doing PE, didn't really have much of a second subject and, uh, you know, helping us as kids learn sports and, and grow as human beings. And yeah, my, my mission was always, uh, you know, I, I want to be a PE teacher. So you didn't talk to them about how much money they made. <laughs> <laughs> well, ironically, you know, when it was time to sort of start making those decisions a little bit later in my career, it was time of teacher strikes and a lot of angst in the teaching unions and the whole game of teaching was changing. You know, mm. things were getting audited and benchmarks and all that sort of stuff. And to be honest, the, the reason I didn't go into teaching was that my teacher friends who I was getting counsel and mentorship from just said, Maybe not right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that kind of changed, changed the direction I thought I was heading at that time in my life. You mentioned in, um, in the notes you sent me that uh, you had some, you, you played uh, high-level football, I think it was, uh, until a certain age, and then you had a health crisis. What, what happened to you? Yeah, I was on the books with Oxford United, who were kind of a lower division team, but they were slowly going through the ranks and, and were in the top division for a while when I was their youth team goalkeeper for a couple of years. But um, I had um, what in England gets called glandular fever. Um, I think it's it's popularly known in North America as mono. Mm. And um, yeah, it just cut me down completely. Um, You know, I went from 155 pounds to 128 pounds. Um, Sorry, I live in the US now, so I I work in pounds, Um, which is a hell of a lot of weight loss. Mm. And um, I guess the one thing I didn't realize, because another friend of mine had it, year before me was just how long it takes to recover from it because how much it really affects the nervous system and a lot of other things as well. And um, leading up to that, I have to tell you, I was playing for 13 teams in that season because of different representative levels. All the older teams were pulling me up to their age groups, you know? Um, And so whether that had anything to do with it or not, but I, I got a very early taste of what maybe overtraining and uh and stuff can can do to somebody and really it was uh, I, I was running i was a good cross-country runner and just one year someone who was always coming in the top three if not always winning i was like 15th and i was so out of breath and then from then on it just sort of really took hold of me lost a lot of weight like i said was in bed for two and a half weeks um because they said it was safer for me to stay at home and uh, yeah that really sort of rocked my world for another year i remember three months after sort of getting back from the illness, my first game back, and it was for a team called Oxford City. I just remember running to the edge of the penalty area to collect a ball in my hands and just having a wave at the coach. I've got to come off. Just, I was so out of breath. And um, yeah, that, um, that really, you know, gave me, yeah, changed my direction in many ways as to, because I didn't have a lot of help getting back. My PE teacher actually, again, was advising weight training, where the physiotherapists were like, you're too young to lift weights. And um, we all kind of know which advice I probably should have gone with back then, right? Um, and uh, that lack of kind of appropriate support and guidance, it took me until I was about 17, 18 to kind of retrain myself back up and give myself a second chance at the pros. And, um, you know, that's really where I guess I learned that, you know, we, we have to have a more holistic approach to these things and just the information to young athletes growing and developing and maybe heading towards a career in performance sport back then just wasn't around. 
Mm-hmm. Who, who was a, a big influencer uh, for you in your life when you were in your teens? Was it parents or was there a coach or a teacher that uh, really influenced you? Or you know, what was your big, big epiphany drive? <laughs> well, I guess um, one thing to share is that my father left home when I was 12. He had an affair and, and left. And so, you know, my mum became a huge influence in how she handled that and battled through that and, you know, was able to go to work full time and and um, still look after three kids. I mean, I had two, two older brothers. Um, there was like a three to four year gap between us. So, you know, my eldest brother was kind of, you know, out, out of the house at that point. But my other brother was still at school with us too. So, you know, she, she and her determination um, to push through those things was huge and it's just you know for me it's pretty sad now that at this stage of her life she's not able to enjoy the things I'm enjoying because she has uh, Alzheimer's and dementia and mm. um, that's that's uh, you know another another thing to to struggle with but um also you know sometimes it was just not people who played big roles but people who just said something at that time in my life that were like almost like mentorship moments um one of them certainly was again my PE teacher who um, were playing volleyball one day and I was yelling at my teammates. And uh, I think this is where I first started to become a coach. He said, Nick, you've got to realize they're not as good as you, not because they're not trying. And purely that made me then think, so what else could it be? Oh, maybe I can help them and show them how to do this Mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was a moment that made me realize that people weren't good just because of effort. You know, there's a, there's a process uh, also, one of the dads, actually, I was coaching a, a boys' soccer team. I started, you know, coaching formally from the age of about 14, 15. And this was a U12 team. And again, I remember kind of yelling at one of the kids at half time. And um, afterwards, the parents said, so did that work for you? Did, the, did he play better? I'm like, no. And I was like in this kind of funky mindset. He said, um, so um, probably not the way to speak to young kids then, eh? And that was a big moment, you know, mm. too. And then probably, you know, a little bit later in my career, there was the, uh, the well, at the time was the director of the academy at Durham County Cricket Club, Jeff Cook. Um, you know, basically just said to me, look, my mission here, he said, is that we've, we've got a lot of young kids who would never come from private schools, would never normally get exposed to cricket and play at this level. You know, he said, but from where they come from and their backgrounds, if we don't make them into great cricketers, let's make sure they, uh, we help them become good people. And that was a huge influence on me too. That's awesome. Um, I don't uh, know how deep you want to go into your your dad's leaving, but I'm just curious because my parents divorced early and kind of became further, further distant from my father. But uh, I always found for me that it created sort of um, a false early responsibility in me to be, uh, you know, an adult in essence. And uh, I think there was a good side to that in the sense that, you know, I took responsibility for things and and was maybe a little bit more in, engaged in some of the things I did early in life. But I think sometimes it also made me too responsible in the sense that I didn't maybe enjoy um, my college life as much because I felt like I, you know, need to carry the line i'm wondering how it influenced you uh when you look back uh, um being uh, less around your dad and stuff yeah i mean I, you know i was the youngest of three um so in many ways now we're older and we get to talk about it and my brothers in many respects he had been in their life for longer mm. so i guess i didn't realize how much it impacted their life 
you know, because mm. you can make it all about you. Right. But I didn't. I, I have to say, I almost become the family social worker. <laughs> um, and, you know, I had two uncles who would always come around. My mum's brother, she was one of like 11 or 12 in her family. And they were so knowledgeable about stuff. So there was, there was like a replacement there. People I could talk to about history and science. And so these are two guys who had no secondary education. Mm-hmm. They were the most intelligent people I've ever met in my life. They were a real force in debates and discussion and arguments. So that wouldn't have been around had my dad been at home. You know, I think mm-hmm. there were things that would not have happened to me uh, had he stayed. Um, mm-hmm. And he wasn't a dictator or anything like that, that like that at all. Um, you know, um, you know he, he was a soccer player himself. You know, but, you know, he, he was a lad about town, went to the pub, played darts, played this game called Aunt Sally. I used to score for them on the dartboard, some mental arithmetic and things like that. But, you know, I think it was more the fact that I, I, I needed to look after everybody else. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think that pervades in me now that, that you, the old way of coping it and not dealing with it for yourself is to help other people. Right. And right. even within the school then, funnily enough, how I got into the coaching and how they started seeing me, you know, look after kids, they started giving me the bad kids at school. I was a school kid myself. <laughs> and the teachers started sending me the bad kids to have conversations with and, and maybe you could get them into your soccer team and, you know, and this, that and the other. So, you know, I think that's, th- that probably is, is how I, how I dealt with it. And, you know, as you know, in the long run, when you have kids yourself, things sort of change a little bit. You have a different perspective on life. You kind of see the struggles and whatnot that parents do go through, you know, and that, mm-hmm. that you know, you can't keep blaming people and to, to hold the blame it takes a lot of energy. So mm-hmm. you look to reconnect and um, explore and, you know, it opens up your eyes in different ways, just about what, what life is like and can, can definitely lend, you know, other um, perspectives that can lead you later in life as well when, when you kind of look back to move forward. Hmm. So you kind of pivot away from being a phys ed teacher and is the direction instantaneous that you go into coaching or how do you discover that coaching is actually something you can earn a living in and, and be professional in, so to speak? Well, interestingly, at that time, there were physical education degrees which trained you to be a teacher but then these first newfangled sports science degrees, <laughs> kinesiology started to emerge. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. I don't have to commit straight away because the other career I was thinking of, Abingdon was also the home base to an RAF station, Royal Air Force station, where I'd, I'd spent some time um, being, a, a, did a work placement there. And I was thinking of going into the forces, the RAF Mm. So, but rather than do it as like a, uh, like a paid program where I had to go in, I kind of want to hedge my bets a little bit. Let's kind of still see what I, what I want to do. Um, so I applied to do sports science and, um, that was at, uh, what was called Newcastle Polytechnic at the time. I ended up actually doing pretty bad in my entrance exams, which uh, was interesting. I was definitely predicted to do a lot better but I had a, a mind meltdown in my uh, history exam. Um, and in England, we do it very differently. You basically study three subjects very intensely for two years. And um, maybe an example of being a generalist very early on was that I chose history, maths, and German. Completely wow. unrelated bloody topics. They don't <laughs> help each other at all, right? You're in completely different mindsets with those topics. 
Uh, maths I ended up finding really difficult. Uh, history, I love the debate, and history probably taught me more about science than anything else. You know, and the German was the ability to speak another language, and that came in handy very, very, uh, very much, you know, later in life. So the sports science degree uh, pathway, interestingly, after the first year I quit, I was really struggling with going from being maybe a big fish in a little pond to now being around all these other superb athletes. Because for some reason, if you were an athlete, you were going to do a sports degree. There was like no other choice for you, which I always find a bit strange when I look back on it now, you know. Um, but um, in my first year, yeah, maybe just things going on in my head and whatnot. So I went back to Abingdon, worked um, at a sports shop, worked at a fitness center and played semi-professional soccer there um, and then went traveling. I went traveling around because of my love of history. And uh, ironically, right now, as we talk, my love of like Eastern European and Russian history I decided to go and visit what what had been all the Eastern Bloc countries. And I had a a marvellous time, three and a half months or so, visiting sports facilities and travelling on my own, meeting locals. Because of the German language, I was able to speak and communicate quite effectively in those countries. And then I I decided to say, okay, so what do I want to do? So I started to look again. And I was pretty convinced sports science was, was kind of what I wanted to do and the area I wanted to stay in. Um, but ironically, it became apparent to me that as I was doing some of my coaching badges in soccer and I was working for some local soccer development organizations, that there wasn't a lot of money in coaching. Hmm. To actually coach the sport itself, at the time then, it was like, that's something you do for free. You don't get hmm. paid for that so unless you're on some kind of coaching scheme. But the money wasn't great. And to progress into the professional ranks, again, it seemed like, well, you weren't a pro, so you've got no chance of coaching in the pros. And of course, we have many examples now of great coaches and people that have gone on to coach in the pros. But I guess I just didn't have that belief. But these were the messages that were getting sent to me. Also, in terms of the Royal Air Force, I was getting negative ninnies in my ear about being in the forces and what life was like there as well. So I started looking at that sports science path. And at the time, the UK had kind of embarked on this um, program through Sport England to really try and get sports science integrated into sports a lot more. And that, that started to interest me more. If I thought, if I can't be a coach... What's the next best thing? What's my plan B? What's my contingency? So at that time, being a sports scientist, exercise physiologist, I'd never heard of strength and conditioning coach at that point in time. Um, you know, it wasn't a, a phrase that was really being used in England. It was more fitness coach. So that's where I started to direct my energies, was more into, into that particular realm. And you know, I felt like I needed to know more. And um, after a year of kind of working and exploring other options after after finishing my undergraduate degree, you know, working in the fitness center where I work with older people, some athletes, younger people, um, I was really interested in the adapted physical activity area. So that kind of uh, came out of a time, my, one of my first visits to Canada. Hmm. I went, did my undergraduate work placement at the Dr. Paul Schwann Center at the University of Regina in Saskatchewan. Um, and I spent some time coaching soccer there, working at that centre. And there was uh, Phyllis Bend was her name, and Stephen Bent who worked there. I worked on their adaptive physical activity program. I worked on rehabilitation programs, cardiac programs, and that honestly was where I thought I was going. Scotty was in that direction. Mm-hmm. And at the time, there was a European master's degree in adaptive physical activity, where as a member of Europe. You would spend about three months in Belgium, in Leuven, the university there, 
And then you had a choice of places to go based on where you wanted to specialize in your master's degree. So I was in the process of applying for that. Um, and just a quirk of fate that that program only run every two years. So I was in the wrong year to apply for it. Um, so I had to wait another year. <laughs> and being young, you're not patient enough to wait. So I was impatient. So I started looking at other options. And my impatience led me to the University of Calgary and their <laughs> master's degree program there. Can I ask you a question before you get into that? Well, actually, a couple of questions. But um, what I what I hear in the threads of, of who you are, which I'm kind of curious about, is, um, you know, a lot of people kind of, they grow up in a town, are kind of aware of the different universities that they could go to, and then they go and take a university degree and they become a professional and they go out, you know, they don't really stray very far. What is it in you, like, already you've told me the story and you were in Germany and then you came back and you were like, oh, I went to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Like, that's not a place somebody would just pick out of their, you know, what to go <laughs> to go to in Canada. So uh, what is it about you that kind of... I don't know, allows you to sort of uh, explore, the explorer in you, in essence, rather than just, uh, oh, yeah, I should go to uh, a school in the UK and, you know. I think there's three things, and one of them you're really going to laugh at. I love collecting stamps when I was younger. Mm. So stamp collecting from countries all over the world fascinated me. And actually, my dad was very interested in other countries. And I used to sit and watch a lot of documentaries with him. The first ever Life on Earth series with David Attenborough. Um, and, you know, my dad spoke about Canada a lot, how, how much he wanted to go there. And that kind of stuck in the back of my head. Hmm. Um, my two uncles, they were both in the forces. They were out in places like Malaysia and all that lot. They'd talk about that. And then my eldest brother was in the Merchant Navy. He actually was in the Falklands War, serving on a ship which was a Canadian Pacific. The Fort mm -hmm. Toronto was actually his boat. That was uh, the, the only water-carrying ship in the Falklands War. But prior to that, he travelled a lot of places and came back with all these exciting things, you know. So, um, you know, I don't know whether it's like I had to get out of my small town, and I don't mean any disrespect to that. You know, um, maybe it was because there was just too much there that you had to move on and go. I mean, all three of us really are wanderers. My eldest brother now, now works uh, in India and Bali and has been all over the place in his jobs. My brother, middle brother, loves traveling and spent a lot, about 10 years traveling and moving around. And, you know, sometimes we say, why, why did that happen to us all? Wouldn't we rather stay in one place with all our friends where we're consistent and whatnot as well? And sometimes we are envious of that of people that do that. But um, yeah, maybe just not one reason, a, a few factors that have contributed to this, I guess, yeah, a, a just desire to go and explore, go and find out, go and go and see what's out there. I will say though, sometimes that pervades into my job career where sometimes I wasn't just patient enough to, to stand still for a while and see how things evolve. <laughs> well, when I read your birthday thing, we'll see if it correlates a little bit, but uh <laughs> Um, the other question I wanted to ask you, because you're uh, um, somebody who's kind of paid a, a fair amount of attention to history, is you go, you learn German, you go to Germany. Um, 
But like, I'm kind of, it's kind of hard to thread the question, but you go there, you explore, I'm assuming you probably um, connect with some of the things that happened in World War II and things around that and the phenomena of that. And now we find ourselves in this place where um, there's a war again, there hasn't been one in a long time and the Eastern block, so to speak. And, you know, they're even talking, they're, the Russians are saying, well, we're rid of the Nazis, all this kind of stuff. So I'm just curious when, when you look at your historical brain, like how what, does what's going on right now kind of click with you and what you discovered when you went to Germany all those years ago? Yeah, I think the first thing, to, without making this a history lesson for everybody, right. is um, kind of what was Germany historically was, is way more East. It's more Poland and those areas. And actually what was half of Germany now was France. Or Frank Reich, you know, um, and just through various wars and things that all kind of changed shape. And, you know, Europe is a hotbed of different tribes, languages, cultures, um, and especially in that whole kind of Eastern region, just kind of get got squashed together. You know, mm. some of our, our listeners are probably fans of the Vikings series right now, and you realize that, you know, the Slavs, which are down here in Europe somewhere over here in the Southeast came from up there, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Slavic was a Viking tribe. And so, so Europe is a, is a very uh, mixed bag of lots of different things and rivalries. Um, and, you know, a couple of things I had to do when I was in countries like Poland and whatnot, who everyone there was speaking Russian um, was I made one mistake when I sat down with an old fellow having a cup of coffee one day, and I started speaking German to him. He just got out of his chair and started yelling at me. And I forgot to let him know I was English first. Mm. But can I have a conversation with him in German? Because I don't speak Russian. And he was able to converse in both, you know. Um, so there's still, you know, a lot of pent up history, anger, mm. emotions mm. That, that still is there. And you go back into, into that part of, of Europe. Look, the, the Ukrainians and the British and, you know, are not scot-free, excuse me for saying that, of, uh, <laughs> of, of blame in long-held tr- truths that can get twisted uh, later in history mm. to create a feeling of animosity, wanting to be separate, and, you know, the other thing to think about as well is that certain parts of Europe have huge resources. Mm. And, you know, what drove the Second World War more than any other stories of romanticism we want to believe in was resources. Mm. And, um, you know, Ukraine and that area, Crimea, that enters the Mediterranean, huge huge resources in mm. that area. So, you know, those are historical um, events emotions um, can quite easily get stirred up to lead to what we're, you know, what, you know, one of what we're seeing right now between Russia and Ukraine. Yeah. I think that's uh, I wanted to ask you cause I, I knew you had the sort of historical lens and I think it's something that's, it's missing in our society. We need more of that historical perspective to understand what's really going on. I think we make it too, it's oversimplified at times and, and having that uh, gives you way more perspective. I think that's like, it's like that for, for all kinds of different elements of our lives. And it's one of the reasons why I do the podcast in the, in the sense that I do is kind of getting guys like yourself and others to talk about their careers because in learning from your career and the 
history of you, other people kind of get a sense of, well, Nick, I know Nick now, and I know Nick, what Nick does now, but how did he make those choices, you know? Mm-hmm. So you, you said, you mentioned you went to UC, so what, what attracts you to there, and then do you stay there? Or is that when you start working uh, around programs there, or where does that go? Yeah, I, when I was looking at my kind of master's degree options, while I wanted to be in education, one thing, again, my uncles and people instilled in me is travel is the best education you could ever get. And, um, you know, I had chances in Australia and BC and looked at some places in the States. But in that placement I mentioned earlier, uh, Julie Hughes was the athletic therapist to the uh, women's national volleyball team. They had a training camp going on in Calgary. So we drove across... And I was just like, wow. I mean, you know, I hadn't seen stadiums like that on a college grounds. And, you know, you've got to remember 1988 was the Calgary Olympics. I'm there in around 1992. So there'd been a lot of investment in Calgary uh, mm-hmm. post-Olympic Games. So it just kind of blew me away what was there and what I saw. And um, I kind of felt that when I spoke to a few people there, that... While sports science was emerging, and you know, Loughborough University was clearly a hotbed for that, I was unsure as to how integrated sports science truly was at that time in, into sport in Britain. And I wanted that integrated experience. And I just felt, whether rightly or wrongly, that at University of Calgary, there seemed to just be more emergence of coaches and scientists kind of working, working together on things. And uh, so that, that appealed to me too. And, you know, I, I, I phoned up, we had conversations. Uh, Mike Lashuk was the program director at the time. And, you know, I was concerned about money. You know, my, my mum, you know, we didn't have a lot of funding um, available to us. And so I was having conversations. Unfortunately, they offered me a half uh, teaching assistantship uh, to go. And after my mum and the divorce, the divorce took ages, the house got sold, which had a little bit of money. Okay, I'll give you this to help you get there, uh, which, you know, I'm eternally grateful for. And, um, you know, but I had to work. I couldn't just go and do a mass. I I had to work to fund it, Um, you know. And uh, that's, I mean, I've always worked um, to to help fund things. And we can talk about why that becomes a problem sometimes. Um, You know, so... I applied there, spoke to Mike, and, um, you know, yeah, that, that was the right decision. Their program wasn't like a, a thesis-based. It was a taught master's degree. To be honest with you, I didn't really understand the difference at the time um, uh, versus the MSc versus what was called at that time a master's in physical education, which then turned into a master of kinesiology just within renaming and rebranding. Uh, yeah, and no, I, I then, I think it was 1994, I went in about the August um everyone's like oh you're here already yeah well it's a bit early term hasn't started yet ironically one of my favorite teachers from Larkmead school in Abingdon um Pat Ainsley Mrs Ainsley who, who unfortunately died way too young her son I found out who lived in Ab- used to lived in Calgary so we hooked oh. up and he was there with his wife so I stayed with them for a little while and they were able to kind of show me around I got what I wanted I wanted to kind of learn the place and before I started so yeah and then the program kicked off um, I think first week of September in 1994. Wow so is this where and when you meet Stu or is that after then and uh, and then how did you end up playing all that stuff? Well, like I said, I had the teaching assistantship, but once I actually got that, it turned into, into a full teaching assistantship. 
And uh, quite early on, there was a student that I had called Matt Jordan uh, on, on my class as well. And um, he's never forgiven me for, for giving him a bad grade. And uh, But then it was, it, was, it was after the – I went back to England in between. So it was a two-year master's. So uh, after the first year, I knew I had guaranteed work back in Newcastle. So I went back to Newcastle, worked at the health club I used to work at, had the whole summer there, able to earn money. And I guess one other thing to throw into the mix at this time, I had had a long-term relationship with someone in England, gone on for four and a half, five years. So you're in the kind of throes of long distance. Are we together? Are we not? There's all those emotions around that kind of going on. So then I, I head back again and, you know, I needed to work. So I, uh, Jody Hicks was the head of S&C, ran the fitness center there. So, um, I uh, applied to work at the fitness center. He took me on there. And then there was this gawky looking guy, you know, with shaved head, glasses, uh, wearing a shell suit top, you know, um, six foot four or whatever he is. And um, that was Stuart McMillan. And uh, we just started having conversations and just started to kind of hit it off and where our kind of heads were with training. And then Jody got me involved with the women's soccer team in Calgary. So I started to become their kind of strength and conditioning coach, that phrase I'd heard for the first time, and also became their assistant coach. So I was able to actually start coach soccer again. And also I was the goalkeeper for the men's varsity team. So I also started to train the goalkeepers and, uh, oh, yeah, that was when Mike Lashup took me to one side one day. And he said, you do realize you want a serious master's degree here, don't you? And he said, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Where are you finding the time? You know, <laughs> where are you putting the time? And I'm like, look, just let my grades speak for themselves, you know? <laughs> yeah, because like I said, I wanted it to be more than just studying. It was the mm. experience of being in a place like that, the people getting out and about, rather than just sort of, you know, turning myself into an egghead. It was more about what experiences can I gain by combining traveling to another country, living in another country with my education. Hmm. So take me through the next few years. How do you, where do you go back to England at the end of this? Or you just keep staying there and that's how you sort of end up getting hooked up with bobsleigh? Well, Stu and I, you know, wanted to set a business up and we, um, we, we started to run our own little training group. Uh, we, were, we were a bit renegade in those days, to be honest. We were borrowing, begging, stealing, whatever we could to train athletes. And Stuart was getting quite a good group. I started working with some soccer teams and whatnot. Um, you know, the girlfriend thing was pulling me back, you know, to kind of you know, figure all that out. So I thought, OK, I'll, I'll go back for a little while and then come back again recognizing of course my visa was only extended for one more year but prior to going back this was going to be around 1997 now I was working the women's soccer team we got to national finals I was working in a massage therapy clinic as their kind of lecturer for anatomy biomechanics and all that sort of stuff and I was earning some some nice money I remember buying myself my first boss suit and you know I'm like wow I've got some money here um, and I thought, well, I need to go back to England and to kind of, you know, finish things off. And I kind of went back too early, really. Had I, had, I, had I not gone back at that point in time, I never would have gone back to England at all. Mm. Uh, but I went back at that time. People from my old university who knew me uh, wanted me to work for them part-time as a physiologist and biomechanist. A local college wanted me to work because, you know, because it's just for people. So I went back and I started working there. And again, I was earning money. So I ended up staying there. And, uh, and then during that period of time, old girlfriend finished during that period of time, you know, playing rugby again with my team, having a great time. 
uh, met my future wife in that period, went back to Canada over the summer, started doing some summer camps and things. And I just, my visa was running out. I hadn't really got anything in place. I couldn't afford the PhD. I kept talking to them about that. It was just outside of my, my ability to pay and whatnot. And so really I had no choice. The visa was expiring. And I remember handing my visa over at the border and uh, I was back to England. And what I had managed to um, line up, though, was a one-year job working for my old university to replace uh, John Emmett, who was going on a sabbatical with one of the local professional soccer teams. So I took over his role uh, in physiology uh, and a bit of biomechanics for that year. And, uh, yeah, had a, had a great time over that particular year doing that. And, you know, that was my first ever full-time paid job. I think I was getting paid sixteen and a half thousand pounds a year, and um, was loving every minute of it. Um, but me being me, doing that job forty hours a week wasn't enough. So I start running <laughs> some other programs uh, outside of that, and uh, I met a guy called Paul Winsper. And if people don't, no one probably knows who Paul Winsper is, but he was hugely influential in my career. Um, he was a little bit older than me, had previously been in kind of like a sales insurance background, become a stud in his knowledge of sports science and whatnot. And um, he had started working for Newcastle United, Durham County Cricket Club, basically a lot of the local pro teams. We had a lot of very similar thoughts around training youth, growth development. And, uh, you know, he had been on that same program as me. So we kind of connected and... Um, as it happened for him, he was trying to build a program for another one of the local universities called University of Durham to build a integrated sport performance support program, not just for their university teams, but a place where he could then consolidate all his contracts and work with them in that way. So he had already started to, to grow that. But then the head kind of physiologist, training coach, whatever they were called back then, for Newcastle United left and Paul was called up to the first team. So Paul then had another 10, 12 years working with the first teams. That left this kind of um, job role or, or, or business, if you like, that he was setting up with the university, with Andrew Walton, who was a local physiotherapist who had his setup. And so they they advertised for an assistant director of, uh, uh, of sport with responsibilities for performance. Probably the first role like that ever advertised and, and in the UK at the time. I don't think there was anything else kind of like it at the time. Um, and maybe because of my kind of North American background and understanding of that and what universities and sport can be like and how performance and Olympic development programs kind of roll, I got the job. Um, and uh, I'm not going to say it's because there's people that I know there that sure that helped. Um, you know, there were some really good people applying for that role. And I ended up staying at University of Durham for the next four and a half years. Uh, building building that program, building a business, making it viable, making it sustainable. I was probably the first person ever to charge student athletes a fee for training. Everything was supposed to be free in those days. And, uh, you know, we had, so I started having Newcastle United Academy, Durham County Cricket Club Academy and First Team, the University Cricket Centre of Excellence, which is like a feeder set up to our professional cricket teams a regional centre for England netball, um, some swimmers from the development programmes, some rowers from the development programmes, Hartlepool United, who are a professional team in the lower divisions, both their first team and their academy, 
Um, and then the, the university teams, which interestingly, despite all these pro teams coming on board very early, the university teams took a little bit of time to warm up to all this. So that program gradually got built over a couple of years, but it was the women's boat club and the men's second team hockey team were the first teams to kind of like invest in this and take this on. And, you know, just to cast forward for two years down the line, um, you know, we had this kind of commandeered Babylon court with a universal multi-gym with a, cu- a, a cleaning cupboard I had to clear out, which the, st- the staff at the centre weren't always happy about, that I'd got <laughs> equipment in. And then we had some outdoor space and it ended up being, we could literally get through 300 athletes in one night by how I organised the sessions. And they literally would come along with their 50 pence piece and buy a ticket <laughs> to come and train. <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized how inefficient that was. And so we started charging the teams up front for the services in the following year. But literally I had, I had little raffle tickets that they would take, pay 50 pence for, went into the pot and that kind of grew that way. And uh, yeah, pretty, pretty amazing. And obviously I started to recruit staff and interestingly, Andrew Walton, um, after like the year and a half or so of helping me kind of structure the business, the finances and, and looking at things like that. Soon as it got to the point where, okay, you need to, you need to hire staff now. He said, that's where I'm out of here. That's a whole new ball game. He said, good luck <laughs> in terms of finding, finding the right, the right staff. Fortunately, I had a couple of really good people come on, had to employ an administrator, a young girl for an apprentice program and a couple of other part-time people as well that, that really sort of helped out. And, uh, you know, that four and a half years at University of Durham, you know, Stuart McMillan came over to visit and uh, it was a playground. It was a, it was a time to experiment, to try things out, to learn. And um, probably the biggest thing that I learned was, and I wasn't very good at it, to be honest, was communication, interaction. Um, I think I, I always thought I had to be uber professional, <laughs> you know? And never mm. kind of let my guard down and whatnot. And Paul was great. Paul had players texting him all the time. He had all their numbers. I look at my phone and go, I haven't got one player's number. And that made me think, why is that? Why aren't players reaching out to me? And, and that, was, that was a big moment, you know, to kind of figure that out. What was it about the way I was going about things that that wasn't really, really happening? Why wasn't I coming across as open or people want stuff from me. So mm. about three years into that role, that started a shift and change for me. I had to become a better people manager. And um, ironically, one of the, one of the interns that worked for me from their sport and the community program, Graham, he was an older guy, actually. He run different businesses and he pulled me to one side one day. He said, Nick, um, you're so inconsistent. I said, what do you mean? He said, when you come in every day, People are scared. They don't know whether to say hello or not, you know, basically. And I'm like, really? Yeah. He said, you know, I said, well, I'm just in my own head thinking about things when I come in. He said, I know, but that sends out a feeling to people. So just try and be more consistent. And that was a great bit of advice. You know, Mm. be there for people. Doesn't matter what mood or whatever I'm in. If someone comes to me with something, not dismiss them, don't make up like what I'm doing is more important. So again, a, a mentorship moment in the moment, just, just like that, that for me, I allowed it to knock me to one side and go, okay, I really got to look at this and change how I go about that. Mm, really cool. So you mentioned uh, meeting your wife-to-be, who is now your wife now. Yeah. You meet her at this time and you guys start forging a relationship. Um, when does she become your wife? 
<laughs> yeah, so we, uh, 1999, yeah. And um, so obviously I come back from Canada and, uh, you know, we, we picked things up and she was like, hey, are you serious about this when you get back? And I'm like, yeah, I am. Um, not long after that, I uh, I bought a house and uh, invited her to move in. And, um, you know, if my eldest son, Jack, hears the start of this, he's like, all right, you're ignoring me now, are you? Because we never mentioned my eldest son, Jack, right at the beginning of all this. Um, you know, but, but you know, um, I kind of, I'm kind of reticent to say this because not many people actually do know this, but let's just say Jack come as part of the package. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was dad from a very, very early on in our relationship. And, um, you know, that, that was something which I, which I never, was never expecting. Mm-hmm. Was, you know, never planned to do that. Never thought that was the way it was going to be. And um, you know, we got together, and then <laughs> she never forgives me for this. That first very Christmas, the millennial year, I basically buggered off and went to Jamaica with Stu, and spent millennium the first Christmas in that house that I had bought that I invited her to move into. She spent on her own while her parents were nearby with with Jack. <laughs> so that that wasn't smart i mean you know you know how how wives can hold things against you for a long long time <laughs> that's one of those things that <laughs> does get brought up in company you've been paying it well. off for a long time since <laughs> yeah 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 so um you know both of us what i liked about her though is that she was so fiercely independent and at times that can cause friction between people as well, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm not, not saying it was a smooth ride, but we, we worked through a lot of things through and through that we got to understand each other a lot better. And uh, we got married in uh, 2001 and uh, we got actually married at a church in, in Durham um, uh, where she was actually christened, um, you know, uh, as well. And so that was kind of nice. Um, interestingly, when you look at the, uh, we always reflect on this. My oldest son's getting married at the end of May now. And, you know, the guest list issue comes in. Who do you invite? Not invite. And all those things, right? So I'm heading, we're all heading back for that wedding, for Jack's wedding. And, uh, you know, when I look at the the guest list, she felt duty bound that she had to invite every aunt and uncle that she had. And everyone there was, for her, was relatives. But my list, other than a few relatives, it was amazing. I could sit, I can picture it right now, sit them all down. There were people from all these different stages of my life. Mm. And they were getting on like a house on fire. But then I realized none of them have ever ever met each other before. That was really kind of cool to see. You know, people from when I was a kid, people from my time in Newcastle, people from my time in Canada, you know. Mm. And yeah, that that was pretty amazing to see. So I had a lot of friends there as well as some immediate family members that were that were important to me. So yeah, 2001 and then 2002, Ethan came along and uh, Ethan was born, born then. And uh, yeah, he's here with us today. He moved to Canada with us, uh, to America with us. Um, but uh, yeah, that's probably another, another part of the story. So you celebrated 21 years now, very recently, I guess. Huh? Absolutely. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So um you probably need two or three hours for your story for sure. But, well, as I, I'm going to read, I'm going to read your, your, uh, you to you and see whether this yeah. resonates with the end of the day. November 17th. So, um, you're a Scorpio eight. Ironically, uh, Stu is a Scorpio. I can't remember mm-hmm. what Scorpio he is, but anyways, to use your power to transform yourself first by accepting your fate, then by transcending it. 
Alas, after a certain age, every man is responsible for his own fate. Albert Camus. Scorpio 8 is the dynamics of obsession. Their challenge is to love themselves and have faith in their higher power. If they are not perfectionists, they act cool and detached. The truth is, this is a facade. The Scorpio 8 wants and needs control. This makes their world small and they miss out on much. They work too hard and they take on too much responsibility. They are attracted to difficult people and situations. They hold in in their life is very controlling. Eight feels safe. The Scorpio Eight is giving up far too much. They need to learn to love themselves. They are talented and strong and must learn to choose the problems and the people in their life. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> is it hit you hit you there a little? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Very bizarre. This this that, book. That <laughs> is that's incredible. And, um, you know, ironically, and there's a lot of talk about this right now, and, and it, it only hit me when I was doing John Berardi's Precision Nutrition Level 2, and there was one unit there about self-compassion, and it broke me down. I, I First time I ever realized how, how I, I lack so much self-compassion. And, I mean, even right now, every morning, I'm on Headspace, and I'm going through a self-compassion meditation series uh on that and you know i've been getting involved in conversations with the likes of josh fletcher uh peter olashoga and various people you know uh, uh, around uh, you know career burnout and whatnot as well but also that this value you know that you, that you have for yourself and to be honest scott i remember reflect on on me being on your show i'm like well what am i on your show for look at everyone else that you've had i almost started i started to feel undeserving you know and then i went to myself you know what no sorry i deserve to be on your show you know, without sounding conceited, hopefully because a lot of the paths I've trod and, you know, I've not always worked at the highest levels. I've lost jobs. I've found jobs. I've been in business. I've worked, you know, hopefully it resonates with a lot of other coaches out there that, that have trod sort of somewhat similar paths. You know, we're not all high flying. We've not all been at one place for 20 years. Mm. You know, we've lived the experiences and challenges of trying to maintain a career you know, in sport performance. And I think hopefully that's that's just one maybe um, guiding light I offer people is that, you know, it is possible to, to have, you know, uh, a level of fulfillment and enjoyment and have a long-term career in this profession. But it, it certainly isn't easy and does come at a cost. Mm-hmm. No, you certainly deserve to be on the show and this and the show is really about unpacking people's lives for at wherever they are in whatever stage and providing people other people who listen insights uh, and there will be I'm sure many people who listen to your life experiment as we are all going through and and you know have resonance in it or see themselves in it which is uh, very valuable. Um I'm going to segue forward to the time and space that when you and I actually bump into each other, and uh, it is at a time when you're working for Bobsleigh Canada and I'm working for the Canadians. And, um, you know, I've talked to Stu about this too. Uh, During that period, like the two of you guys got sort of into a situation where I think you had visions of what you wanted to create. You ran up against sort of, a resistance in the in the in the the the, the in Canada not unusual. Mm-hmm. You're 
both have kind of mavericky uh, energies in you and, and, and probably self-reflect back to that time in your own growth. But I know that you both recognize that was a um, seminal sort of period of time in your lives for sort of re, re, re-engaging and maybe or engaging in where you were going to go afterwards and stuff. So um, take me back to that time, some of the things that you learned from that experience and then how that in some sense transcended for you into what you're doing now in Altus with Stu and the other things that you've grown to do. Quick break here. We'll be back with our guest in just a moment. We've been lucky at Leave Your Mark since the very beginning almost that Matrix Fitness has come on as our main sponsor and they remain steadfast to this program because they know how it serves the community at large the same way they serve the human performance community as well. And Basically, if you need something in the world of human performance, whether it's to build a performance facility or training facility or fitness facility, whether it's a home facility you're trying to build or a hybrid facility out of the garage to work with clients, it doesn't really matter what the actual goal is. They have a product for you. They have the equipment and they have the service capacity to make sure that you're getting what you need when you need it for what you need it for. And that's the key is they are a full service organization. They are worldwide. They are one of the biggest Uh, equipment manufacturers in the world for human performance and they remain dedicated to bringing great products every day to you the consumer so that you can do what it is you need to do which is take care of your clients and or take care of yourself i encourage you to go over to team up with matrix.ca and check out their products today ask them the questions you need answers to and they will do their best to take care of you Thanks again, Matrix, for taking care of LYM. Do you struggle with finding the reason why your client keeps coming back to you with the same injury problem or why your client that you're training is having limitations in their performance? Do you find yourself challenged with how to progress the exercises that you're going to do or regress them or understand what actually is going on with their movement and what may need to be tweaked or changed or cleaned up so that they can function more appropriately and perform better? Do you find it challenging sometimes to work in or with other practitioners and professionals so that you can create a solution for the clients or the team or the organization that you're with? Well, reconditioning is all about providing you with an operating system for navigating those environments and those situations. It is a fundamental process that scripts and brings together the worlds of therapy and performance in uh, a way that no one else is really doing. It brings together applied neurology, the foundation of uh, why we move and how we move, and gives you the tools to make the changes and understand where you can take your tool set and be more tactical with it and get greater intervention Uh, outcomes and better outcomes in general for your athletes and for your clients in general. So this is not just a system for athletes. It's a system for every human being. And we also believe that every human being is some form of athlete. So we need to look at the human being, what it is that the human 
wants to do and take care of business when it comes to getting them prepared to do what they want to do. So if you're interested in upgrading your professional practice, run over to reconditioninghq.com today and take a look at our offerings. Uh, We have a beautiful course curriculum and program that takes you from point A to point Z or Z if you like Z better than Z and helps you take care of uh, all the people that you need to take care of on a daily basis. A reminder that the doors are open for application to the LYM Life Lab that begins right at the start of May and this month we'll be taking applications sorting out who's going to be a part of this program we want people who are dedicated to self-reflection and growth and contribution and want to make a change in their world and be the best they can be I suggest you head over to lymlab.com today. Check out the program on the LYM Life Lab page. If you want to, there are two free downloads there that you can jump on um, just to get you started with instigating change in your world and uh, working on your mindset and other skills that we're going to be dumping into and having a lot of fun with in the program. There's a lot to it. Uh, If you read the fine print, so to speak, on that page, the Leave Your Mark Life Lab page, you'll see some of the different things that you're going to be learning, the things we're going to be doing, and how we're going to operate through this next year. I want to uh, invite anybody who wants to instigate change in their lives and create the best situation for themselves under the guidance of mentorship and community. Jump on it today, uh, head over there and apply, and if you've got any questions, just feel free to PM me. Take care. We're back. Enjoy the podcast. Yeah, I look back at the time with Canada, bobsleigh Canada skeleton as one of immense learning, growth, but huge stress actually as well. One thing was I left my family behind mm. um, to go and take the job. When I got there, Dr. Steve Norris basically said, well, we really couldn't find anyone else who wanted to take this role on. So we thought, why the hell not you? <laughs> Because I was going to be fresh eyes on everything, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I still remember doing the interview when I was in Sheffield and setting up my dining table with pictures of the people who are on the interview panel. And I was dressed in a suit to take that interview. And, um, you know, they, they offered me the role. And actually, the, I, I was really enjoying myself. I was, spent, I was one year into a role at Sheffield Hallam University where I was building their sports performance consultancy I was also a halftime lecturer for them too. And, you know, we had just kind of settled into a nice sort of lifestyle in Sheffield. You know, I was riding my bike every morning, taking Ethan to nursery school, going to the university. University holidays are pretty generous and whatnot. And I was working with Sheffield Eagles. And for some reason, I let this opportunity blow my world apart. I mean, and uh, because it was to get back to Canada. I, I never saw myself ever living in England. I always wanted, I had this itch. I needed to get out of England. I wanted to live somewhere else. I wanted my family to experience that. But yes, but my family didn't come with me. Mm. <laughs> so um, there was always that layer of stuff and they come to visit and whatnot too. And um, you know, so in, in Bobsleigh itself, I found myself up against um, a very... Um, challenging, um, domineering environment from a few individuals that I was like, oh, okay. And literally the first meeting I had when I got there in Banff um, was they all wanted to fire Stuart. They're off to a meeting to fire Stuart. I'm like, oh, so what's going on? 
And no, I don't think anyone really knew me and Stuart were connected. One or two people might have done. And there was like some performance advisor they had hired on at the time that a lot of athletes weren't happy with Stu. And they're about to go off to a meeting. I'm like, well, I guess um, I know I'm new here, but since I've kind of appointed, do you think that's something I should probably listen to and be engaged in? Hey, I want to see all your documentation and evidence as to why this decision's being made. You know, but literally all they had was complaints and bitching and moaning, no actual data or stuff to really support it. Let's just put a hold on this for a little bit. That was literally my first day in the job. Mm. So that kind of showed you what a rocky boat I was working on. They just come out of the Torino Olympics with a with a medal. And, you know, first year after Olympic Games, as we all know now, is is rocky, right? It's a very strange period of time. So, um, yeah, a lot of disgruntled people, a lot of issues with the organization. Um, they had another high performance advisor there that his first speech to the team was to tell them to bypass me and go to him if they had any problems. And unfortunately, my teenage kind of, I'm not going to take that approach, pulled him to one side and had a kind of a direct word in his ear which may or may not have gone down too well with the own the podium group. Um, but I wasn't going to be kind of trodden over the first moment I was in, in the job. And uh, maybe ego got hold of me of a little bit. But um, on the flip side to that, ironically, I, I read a book by a guy called Michael Watkins, and it's called The First 90 Days. And it was about, you know, presidents and stuff and going into new office and giving you an idea of, you know, kind of how, how to handle things. And it basically had four kind of layers to this. One was, is this a startup business enterprise that you're going into? Is it a deconstruction, reconstruction project? You're taking over something that's just going wrong. You need to kind of go back to its roots and build up again. Or is it more of a, a realignment product? Kind of keep it going the way it's going and realign. Mm. And he gave you lots of kind of good strategies in and around that. And, um, you know, one of them was don't make too many rash decisions too early. But right, okay, I'll, I'll hold on to that. That didn't work. I made, I made some calls pretty early on um, that uh, were the right cause, but maybe the wrong time. And they, mm. people don't forget those things. So the back end of all this, when you know me and Stuart were let go, it was definitely those people that we had pissed off earlier on that were at the front of making sure we were kind of moved on. Moved on after a World Cup, a world record World Cup series for Bobsleigh Canada Skeleton. They'd never won as many World Cup medals before. The only downside was the World Championships are in Germany again, you know. So you're trying to slide against the Germans on their home track. So we only come away with one World Championship medal. But we had a lot of lot, a lot of fourth places, which considering again it's their own track was really good, but that wasn't deemed good enough. And then eventually they brought on a new um, CEO. The Chris Farstad was fired as the CEO. They brought on a new CEO, who again we just clashed straight away. Um, and and you know and, and I would say through all this, um, there was an organisation um, called B Two Ten that were. <laughs> That when I first got there, I was told I had to get a hold of this organization and they were, you know, splitting up the group and were bad for the group and whatnot. And I'm like, well, let me have a conversation with them. I actually thought what B210 were trying to do was do what the organization was unable to do, or the people in the organization were, were unable to do for those best athletes. So I tried to work with B210, get closer with them. That's where you came in, started to understand you know, the work you were doing with individual athletes and whatnot, you know. 
just unfortunate what you were doing was on the other side of the country to where we were. But I have to say that, um, you know, JD um, looked to what I was trying to do and, and, you know, where he could have blown everything apart. He's like, no, this guy's, this guy's different. Uh, so he gave me a chance and he was a good mentor through that period of time. He was the one who gave me the heads up that I might be getting the chop soon as well, you know, and, mm -hmm. um, but I'm ever thankful for, you know, his ability to work with me to incorporate B2 tell into what we were doing, uh, be part out of the solution, not being seen as the problem as a lot of other people were. Um, but yeah, but eventually the chop still came. Mm. Me and Stuart were in Altenburg in Germany at those world championships. And uh, basically, you know, we had to go and do a runner because <laughs> we knew uh, we were going to get chopped the very next day. So I actually pulled Stuart from the track. I just sent him a message saying, you've got to come now. No explanation. He didn't need to ask me why. He left the track in the middle of a world championship. We met up at the hotel, packed our bags and went and uh, got on a plane back to Canada. And that wow. was that. Wow. So I'm not going to spend the whole podcast figuring out how to tell people the story of Altus, but obviously you guys end up, uh, you end up going back and there's a, a whole bunch of stuff you end up doing in England. And then you come back to Lake Tahoe, yeah. <laughs> terrible place to be, uh, <laughs> take a position there. And then you, you start stewarding the educational process at Altus. And mm. I want to take the, the last few minutes of this podcast to sort of look at, you know, with all the different experiences you've had in your career, what, how is that, how has that shaped the lens of what you're doing now with Altus in terms of you building education for other coaches and, and what, what did, what do you recognize was uh, pieced together by you that you're trying maybe to create, um, a, call it an easier pathway for people to, you know, experience these things or learn these things? So what, what I'm really pleased about is how two particular things have gone full circle. One is to join up with Stuart again. You know, we, we were pretty formidable in Calgary and, and for my own choice and decisions, I chose to leave and do other stuff. And he, he was on his path and obviously we kept in contact for the whole time. So, but we always knew we could do good things together. And so that's, that's one, the opportunity just to be back working with Stu on a regular basis was, was paramount uh, for that. And, you know, I gave up my own company, my own business in the UK that I was building up. You know, I had a choice kind of go more back office and build the business up and get it to a level where I earn a good salary and I've got other people working for me or go on to be having a salary working with Altus. But there was that adventure bit. You get a chance to live in America and this place called Lake Tahoe. Susan, what do you think about this? Timing was just right. Jack was in the army. Ethan was a, uh, the part of school that it was the right time for him. And Susan was literally um slowly being murdered every day by the banking industry so a lot of things lined up to make this possible unlike the first canada trip when i was working for bobsy canada skeleton where what lined up with us being fired as well was their knowledge that susan's dad was ill with lung cancer and i was gonna have to go home anyway they kind of made the call pretty easy um so that was that was another sort of mitigating factor in the bobsleigh kind of story too but back to altis and now um, the other thing that's gone full circle is that, remember I said I wanted to be a PE teacher. Remember I said I like to help people. I, you know, and this is what's gone full circle. I, I'm, I'm able to teach, coach, assist Dan in mentorship, maybe be a mentor in my own way. And to have this platform now through Altis 
to do this, I, I couldn't be happier, you know, and, and the experiences that I've had and gained from working on the mentorship programs, the education courses we do um, to see the real impact and hear the real impact we, we are having with people, the connections I'm able to make, you know, to be able to reconnect with you and so many, you know, um, giants of our industry through Altus and those connections. It's not lost on me. I'm really humble to be here. And if I can, you know, segue more into this role of coach, educator, developer, whatever you want to call it, then, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in my, I'm in the right place. Mm, That's awesome. So if you were to uh, bump into Nick, who, uh, you know, had just, uh, just gotten back to England for the second time kind of thing. And you were starting that business and, you know, you had this opportunity to come back to North America. What would you say to that guy? Um, you know, grab it with both hands and, um, you know, it's, but it's got to be right all the way around. You know, the first trip to Canada probably wasn't right all the way around for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, this this was right all the way around, just everything aligned. So, but be patient because, you know, uh, that period of time back in Sheffield, I said I always wanted to get away from England. I was really happy then. You know, I, I wasn't running away from anything to come here. We The business was going well. The work with Sheffield Eagles, the England golf work, Derbyshire Institute of Sport, the work I was doing there with a bunch of great people, young athletes, you know, um, things things were, were, were going pretty well. You know, again, I didn't, Susan's job in the banking industry was, that that was causing problems. She was very stressed about that. And, you know, we had a couple of, you know, we had another credit crunch we went through. We hit two different credit crunches during that period of time, which had a big impact, you know, on us, on us financially in various ways. And, um, yeah, just sometimes, you know, just, plod through things. I mean, Winston Churchill is known for saying one thing that as British are great at doing is that we just learn how to bumble along. And uh, whereas earlier in my career, I was moving here and going there and taking this opportunity and chasing, chasing the money down. It was always like, I've got to earn, got to earn, got to earn. Never enough, never enough, you know? That mm. Just that period of time calmed me down a lot more. You know, I, I got more consistent, more sustainable. And uh, this was a choice to say, you know, yeah, sometimes these opportunities do come along. Don't jump at them straight away because it's the new shiny thing. Give it more considered thought, think it through and uh, make sure as best as you can, your family are on board. And, um, you know, that's what I tell that person back then. Nice. Beautiful, man. Nice spending uh, over an hour with you and learning about your history and uh, wish you best with your son's wedding coming up and uh, your trip back uh, across the pond and uh, have a great time and we'll uh, see you on the other side, sir. Thanks for having me, Scotty. Really appreciate the time today. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.